Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Utah Liberty Talk. You already know the deal. It's TD, TR for Freedom. You already know what it is. Hope you guys are having wonderful holidays. Now that the holiday season's over, maybe you guys will be a little bit less stressed or whatever. I sure know that I will be. Um, today, I got something fun planned for you. This is going to be the first of two doubleheader episodes. Um, I'm going to be talking about in this episode... Uh, we're going to be uh, talking about the education system. Some people might not find this one quite as interesting, and some people might find it really interesting depending on what you do. Um, the problems in academia, the problems that we see with the public education system, and so on. And then the second episode today, we are going to be talking about communism versus capitalism. I love this talking about this. You guys hear me talk about capitalism a lot and why... Even, you know, lots of people that are into capitalism and become free market enthusiasts are uh, very numbers-oriented people and economic uh, economists. Um, I myself uh, do find myself interested in economics, but I am definitely, most certainly not a numbers person, I would say. Um, I, I like to focus a little bit more on literature and social theory and, and so on, but... Even with, without the numbers necessarily, capitalism is as well the morally correct philosophy. Um, and we're going to be talking about that in the second episode. But this first episode, we're going to dive right in and talk about um, the education system in America. Uh, make sure you guys uh, get involved with the podcast. I love to hear the feedback at TR4Freedom on Twitter or at Utah Liberty Talk on Twitter. Um, you can also uh, reach out to us on, uh, many of you know me personally, so you can do that, or uh, reach out to Utah Liberty Talk, myself, us, me, uh, through the website. So, uh, with that being said, let's jump right in. So, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to talk about education today, and, and uh, this is going to be interesting to see where uh, where we can take this and how long I can make this, because, um, you know, after all, it is just one topic. However, I think that there are many aspects of it that should be taken into consideration. Um, and additionally, although this doesn't necessarily have to do with my government representation, stand, my government stance on it, um, I'm, I'm going to be talking a little bit about the way academia is run in itself um, and uh, the problems with it and what I plan to do to combat that um, and, and what we can do. But um, to start off, um, you know, there, you know, I graduated high school class of 2020s, so just almost almost two years ago now. And um, there's a lot of people in this Generation Z, you know, this generation that have a really big problem with the education system, and rightfully so. You know, it is a, it is a very, um, it is a very uh, one-size-fits-all system. And you guys will, you know, hear me talk about that whole concept in general on the show quite a bit. But one-size-fits-all is never necessarily the best case for almost anyone, let alone the uh, individual students that. Um, don't have education that pertains to their interests and skill set. So um, for many people, um, education starts at the preschool level um, before kindergarten, but many people as well started off um, in kindergarten. I myself did go to some preschool. <laughs> um, not that I think that's necessarily the biggest thing, um, because a lot of the learning that doesn't necessarily, that happens in life, doesn't necessarily come from a school setting, um, although there's very many important lessons to be learned from the school setting. So, um, you know, as, as a child is developing and growing, they, um, they learn a lot from their parents, actually, in the family atmosphere. Um, they're learning, they, you know, one of the great pros of um, public education or even private education, uh, aside from homeschool, is that it allows students the ability to um, to be able to interact with people and learn interaction skills and uh, relationship skills and so on. And I think that a big part of um, people can be can be formed by that. I don't think they're limited to that, or restricted by that, or their destiny is predetermined by that. But I think that those kind of things can certainly help. Um, so, you know, whether or not you go to preschool, I don't necessarily think is, is incredibly important. Um, if, if you're 
receiving those same skills in other areas of your life, like through your family and and maybe you go to church and you're like a sunbeam or you're just, you know, you're a kid in church or whatever it is, um, whatever religion you grow up in. I just ha happened to grow up in the LDS faith. So I just use that as as an example. Um, but I think that, you know, those kind of skills that are that are um, often credited unique to the education system are uh, overlooked in other aspects of life that um, people will endure through their younger impressionable years. Um, with that being said, I think that the public education system gets way too much credit for that kind of thing. Um, and I think that essentially when you make something a compulsory uh, association, then of course you're going to learn learn those kinds of skills. It's it's a given. I don't think that it's necessarily something that we should be praising the education system for in any manner, though, because um, just because that happens to be the activity that takes up the majority of a person that age's life doesn't mean that this is the only place that they can learn those skills. And even that place should necessarily be credited to why they learn those skills. Because like I said, there are other, you know, through preschool, um, you know, where, where it seems optional. Um, there are other ways to learn those same skills and a, a kid going into kindergarten from straight, you know, straight from preschool or not having preschool um, can very well not be told apart from one that has done the other. So, um, you know, I think that that pre-education has can can do and probably does have a lot to do with um, the, the functionality of the family or external relationships or extracurricular activities that a child does participate in where they can additionally learn those skills. And you get to elementary school and, um, you know, you've got, you know, these kids that, you know, you see uh, teasing or bullying happen. I think as much as, you know, Many people may not want to necessarily admit. I think that bullying um, happens at that age more commonly than any other age, just because there there are certain lessons that haven't really been taught yet about um, how to make people like you or how to um, encourage people to like you or how to be a positive influence on people and so on. But um, I don't think that I think that uh, you know that's 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 probably the the roughest stage if you think about it in terms of. The, the social mapping. Um, but again, you, you're going to learn a lot of these same things in, in different ways throughout the various degrees of education you'll experience as you go through your educational career. Um, and so, you know how it is in, in elementary school, um, you go and, you know, you have the same class. Generally, I'm not sure what private education necessarily looks like in every school. That's just, which is what's nice about private education, you know, is you have, you have different options. There are different routes that you can go, different things you can encourage. But yeah, you know, this, the same group of 30 or so kids that you would have class with, 28 kids, whatever. Um, and you'd have generally the same teacher, except for when you're doing, um, I, I'm not sure what they call them these days, rotations. You know, you maybe you'll have an art teacher that you go to every Tuesday and a computer teacher you go to every Wednesday or so on. Um, but generally, you have the same classmates and the same teachers, and then you've got your friends that you play with at recess, and, and you make friendships in your class that necessarily aren't the same as uh, your same friends that you're going to have outside of school. Maybe you play sports or something like that, or, or you have friends from church activities that you play with at recess. Um, and I think this brings on a very interesting social construct um, for, for kids to see. And you kind of see that paralleled a lot um, in later in life. But, you know, you've got uh, many people have got work friends and, and they've got outside of work friends. You know, I have friends that I don't work with um, and I have friends that I do work with. And, um, and I think that kind of is an early resemblance of, of those kind of uh, relationships and the differences of those relationships that people are going to uh, develop really in their lives and such like that. Um, with that being said, you know, you, you're, it's, it's an interesting situation. And I feel like many kids feel like they're uh, often cooped up in the same classroom with the same teacher and the same people, which is why I think recess is um, it, it makes sense at that age, and it's kind of a necessity even for children to, to be able to release some energy and maintain focus throughout the day. With that being said, I think that, um, I think that school is, is too long. Um, this is something you'll hear me talk about when it comes to the government in general, but um, teachers' unions are a part of this. And I'm not going to say that teachers are bad because that's, you know, it's just kind of a ridiculous statement to make. But... Um, you know, you see, um, 
you see a lot of, uh, if I recall correctly, you know, from, if I recall correctly from my younger ages, there is, there's, there's time that gets wasted that happens. Um, and you know, you see this in a lot of aspects of the government and such, but, um, in addition to that, you know, you'll see when, when changes in the government happen, you'll, you'll see congruent change. You'll see changes in curriculum that, that operate along a similar time scale in certain ways, which, which is interesting because, um, and this is more so speaking to education as a whole, but you have, you know, each state majorly runs their education, but they have to answer to the federal government. Um, a lot of this was done through Title IX, um, but, you know, through the Department of Education and such, and um, they set specific parameters or objectives that states are encouraged or required to meet through their um, slightly varied curriculums. Now, I myself um, in high school did move around a little bit and I got to see the differences in the curriculums and four different states, which was interesting in the way that the credits played out. Um, didn't end up majorly affecting me when it comes to the credits too much. But um, anyways, so um, you, you move on to junior high and this is where you start to fine tune and your, your social skills a bit and you start to, you know, um, hang out with friends. You become closer to your friends. You hang out with them more outside of school than you would in elementary school generally, uh, unless you know them for a while, but you know, you, you begin to make more closer friendships and then you probably get really close to these people. And a lot of these relationships will, will carry through on to high school. Um, I went to a junior high that most of the kids did not go to the same high school as I did. And I decided to go to this high school because there was better um, education opportunities for me there, as well as um, I was more interested in, in playing sports rather than sitting on the sidelines. So I went to a school that had better academics, but not as great of uh, sports programs, which seems to have worked out favorably for me as far as my decisions allowed it to. Um, regardless though, um, a lot of these friendships are going to carry on through high school. And even the, I had most of my friends in junior high didn't go to the same high school that I did. Um, but I had friends that went to different junior highs that I did that I was already friends with that I made friends with in high school. Um, and I still remain, you know, I'm still friends with a lot of those kids I went to junior high with, but didn't go to high school with. So, um, it really, that kind of, uh, it's not necessarily permanence because you never talk to these guys anymore, even if you don't hang out with them, but, um, you know, you, de you develop more longer lasting relationships and, and meaningful relationships too, especially because as you get into high school, life becomes a bit more stressful. Now you also see, and, and I've been calling it junior high because that's what it is. And in, in this area of Utah, some people refer to it as middle school. I'm, I'm sure that you guys understand, um, what I'm referencing, of course. Um, and then, and I have no real opinion on whether middle school should start at sixth grade or junior high should start at seventh and, and, you know, how I feel about that. I have no real opinion on that. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't so much care for that. I don't think it really was a big deal either way. I'm sure at the time I would have really loved it, um, to, you know, leave the one classroom scenario, uh, behind when I was in, uh, elementary school. But, um, you know, I, as you know, so that, but it is what it is. I was, I was a, a fifth grader. Um, so anyways, with that being said, then you go, you go into high school and life becomes more stressful. And as you know, why, why does life become more stressful when you get into high school? Um, you know, you begin to take on, um, probably more responsibilities. You, you're probably a little bit more active in your extracurricular activities at school, whether that be student body office or yearbook, or, um, you know, all these, all these different opportunities that high school has to provide. Um, but as well, you know, you start to make that transition into adulthood, you know, you're finishing up puberty or you're in the heat of it, I suppose. Um, and, uh, you're, you're really figuring out who you are long-term and trying to, I know that people will say you'll, you know, change who you are after high school, but I think that, um, you know, there's, this is still probably the, you know, the biggest step in terms of figuring out who you are that you'll take up to this point. So obviously that's monumental to people of that age. But in addition to that, like I said, you're, you're beginning to transition into adulthood a bit. And you, um, in addition to these other responsibilities you take, could possibly take on, uh, probably the most common responsibility one will take on in high school, um, that majorly impacts their life, um, that um, is is probably the second biggest thing in their life aside from 
school is is a job you know most i got my first job at 15 years old right before i started my um sophomore year of high school and um many people are, are beginning to find jobs at this time many people um will have jobs at least their junior or senior year of high school and um you were one of the cool kids if you had one when you were young younger like that um just i thought you know makes sense but you know a lot of people are paying for cars they're paying their parents for cars or they've got to save up and buy a car um and these are like these adult responsibilities starting to creep in a little bit now this is where my criticisms of academia and more specifically public education come into play so and i and i want to make a somewhat of a disclaimer here but when you talk about public education and the way that it works or the way that it should and shouldn't work and then private education um, when I specifically talk about how I feel about academia, I'm not saying that, and this is very important to understand about the free market, I'm not saying that my idea of what academia should look like is necessarily what private schooling is going to look like. And I think this is a beautiful thing about the market because you can have an abundance of different private schools, uh, maybe some that are focused on sports that would... Um, you know, focus on um, getting kids to the professionals because they have real talent or um, maybe even extending their high school careers a little bit longer so they can um, continue at a more novice level to grow those skills. Maybe they're not ready to go to college yet. Maybe they're not ready to play college ball yet, but they have the potential um, to do it. So, you know, that's one example of, of some different focuses that these schools may have. Um, in addition to that, you know, I, I very well, in my personal opinion, I think that we very easily could get, um, not necessarily out on their own, but get students to transition faster to that level of adulthood if we tried to expedite the process of um, the maturation in the education system. And a good example of that is, is how um, many students are already independently desiring extra work or jobs or the ability to make money or work experience in one form or another. So you kind of see these characteristics manifest themselves. And, you, and I, you know, I know I've got a, a great friend of mine who, um, you know, went to, went to school and such. And, and he was, you know, he was a, he was a student at school. But he, he worked a lot of hours and, um, you know, he graduated high school and, um, you know, he's, he's been working at this same job since he was in high school, which is fantastic because it, because of this, he has um, rose through the ranks quite well. Um, he's gotten, I mean, he travels for his job or at least did until he took a different position. He's on a salary and, and he's really high up now in the ranks to where he's a self-sustainable person at this age because he had that work experience through high school and he stuck with it. Now, this is one of the faults of public education. And I think, frankly, possibly the biggest fault of public education are the compulsory attendance laws. Um, and, you know, you can, drop out of, you can drop out of high school at the age of 16, you can, but the social stigmas around that are unhealthy because of compulsory education laws and, and, and attendance laws. So, um, you know, when someone is a high school dropout, they're seen as, you know, oftentimes in society, they're viewed as a failure um, or dumb or something of the sort, which I think is a stigma that should be changed. Ultimately, right, what's really important is for us to continuously keep in mind that this is not a one-size-fits-all scenario. And I know many, many students at the time were former students that have, you know, been through this process. And I got, I was um, recently at a meeting, um, well, at, a, at an event, I suppose, and um, I was speaking with a lady running for Congress and, um, and this other lady, and we were having a conversation, and this other lady um, had been in the academic, academia system. And she asks me, uh, how do you feel about the ACT and the SAT and standardized standardized testing for students? And you know that's it's a it's a it's a really good question because um, you know it's something that um, so so for myself right I um, I got a scholarship to where I go to school because I happened to score high on my ACT when I took it. So my it, it benefited me moving forward from that point. And I know there are other students who have had, frankly, the opposite happen. I know there are students that have ha had better grade point averages than myself throughout high school that sc scored lower than myself on the standardized testing. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that um, I'm a better test taker and they pay better attention? Perhaps. 
Perhaps not. Perhaps everyone works different in different environments, and different environments suit people better than those environments would suit someone else. And this is what's important for us to remember and keep in mind when we're talking about um, education in general. It is not a one-size-fits-all scenario, particularly when it comes to the mapping and molding and um, identifying the potential of one's personality or brain. Um, everyone is a unique individual, and, and perhaps we might all be equal, but everyone has their strengths and everyone has their weaknesses. And it is preposterous for us to assume that all of those strengths should manifest themselves in the same areas. Now, even within that, compulsory education in itself would have to be morally and by my philosophy, philosophically wrong, because compulsory education uh, in, in high school particularly in this country is perhaps the largest system of incarceration in the world. Possibly not in other situations like China, but it's at least in the country. I would, I would be willing to, I would be willing to make a monetary wager that there are more students in the compulsory schooling system than there are um, people in prisons. And I'm actually going to go ahead and look this up. How many people are in prison? Let's see. Prison in the U.S. How many people are in prison in the U.S.? 2.12 million people. How many students are in um, public schools in the U.S., not college. So this says that um, in American public schools there are over 50.7 million students. So this is 25 times the amount of people. And and let's we can even cut it down like 10 million or so. But, but regardless, even if you cut that number in half, even if you took a third of that number, the, the number would be just massively higher than the amount of people incarcerated in prison. Now, perhaps one of the worst things about this is that these, these people that are practically incarcerated for a large portion of their days and impressionable lives uh, did nothing wrong. These are innocent people, yet they, yet they are being forced into involuntary servitude. Now, some people may make an argument that this is for the greater good. And this is where I would counter that. Um, but, well, before I bring... Before I go into that, I think that, like I said, um, when it comes to standardized testing, one size doesn't fit all. It may be beneficial for a student to take it. It may not. Um, when it comes to going to a public college, I have a really hard time um, believing that anything public should be mandated. I believe a private school should be able to determine whatever tests they deem necessary for enrollment. But um, I have a really hard time advocating for anything mandatory in the public school system. So I don't necessarily think they will or should be mandated um, with these testings, not to mention that I think it's a bad environment and bad situation to put these kids in, and it's not great for comparison. But I think that it can be beneficial. So ultimately, like many things, I think it should be voluntary. But with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and go right into, you know, what I was saying. Um, you know, these people were innocent. They didn't do anything wrong, yet they are um, being forced to spend a major portion of their impressionable years, if not all of their most impressionable years, in a compulsory government schooling system. Now, and again, some people, this is what brings me to the point, some people may say, well, this is, this is for the greater good of society. This is, um, you know, the, the students may not realize it, right? The students are obviously going to feel like they don't want to go to school. Yes, because they would feel like school is incarceration for them. Sure. Take that at face value. Even if it is good for the students, right, it is still forced. And I, I find it really hard to believe that there would be an abundance of parents that would be okay with their child not partaking in some sort of education if the compulsory attendance laws were to not be in place. But with that being said, I'm making the case now that encounter maybe you would, someone would say that it's for the greater good of society for compulsory education to be a thing because it uh, elevates the level of knowledge and intelligence our society has. Um, the ability to learn, the ability to um, expand upon one's education, the, uh, the ability to understand a, a ranging field of subjects. Okay. And my argument to that would be, I have, I have two major points here. First of all, 
people that will go through high school, and you can particularly see it in this day and age. Of course, I only attended high school in this day and age, so I wouldn't be able to speak for in the past or possibly Gen X or the boomers or the, even the millennials, although I see that they probably had a similar structure to ourselves. Um, but quite as much for myself, and this was consistent through all of the high schools that I went to um, in my uh career in high school. Um, the last two years of high school, uh, the, the primary objective is to prepare the students for college. And the stigma and the um, stressed importance of college makes it seem like it's almost ob obligated for a student to succeed uh, to continue their education and go to college. But these last two years of high school are essentially boiled down to, they, they they only serve, they exclusively serve as preparation for a university. And I find this extremely counterproductive to the well-being of society, to be frank. Um, you know, if, using the example of my friend who worked at, at the same place and worked his way up in the ranks and now has a, a great job that, that he, he could probably support a family on very easily at this age. Um, you know, you, you um, are taking that ability and choice away from the students that have no interest in continuing their education. And this was another point she brought up. She said, what about the students in college that don't want to be there, that they feel like they have to, or they're forced into it, or they really don't know what else to do, and they're distracting and even holding back the students that are there that are eager to learn, actually, in college. And I think that this is a very important point for us to recognize that to, to be quite frank, some people are better off not continuing their education in a sophisticated academic, and I wouldn't even say sophisticated, that is a very bad word for me to use right there, in, in the academically structured field as we know it, as in college. Um, for some people, that is very counterproductive, and it doesn't teach them what they need to learn, or it doesn't teach them where they're, um, how to capitalize on their strengths, or how to... Um, how to really be able to um, make themselves, as far as their interests and strengths go, successful in their life. Because the bottom of the line is, college isn't for everyone. It just isn't. Some people have no interest in the liberal arts. Some people have no interest in going to medical school or law school or any of the sort. So, you know, what do you do? You, you, you remove compulsory attendance laws and allow students the choice, right? We can easily, someone who is at a proficient rate by the time they are done with their sophomore year of high school um, is likely smart enough to, to have the diploma. Not necessarily when it comes to life skills, and I'm not advocating for parents to say, well, you're 16 years old, high school's over, we're kicking you out, right? That's not, that's not the point here. And I think that um, society would adjust um, you know, based off of how it works, but I think we could very easily shave those first two years off of high school to make the education system more efficient, right? Because as far as I'm concerned, right, and this was even the case in my sophomore year, um, no, I lied, it was my junior year, but I arguably make the case taking geometry my sophomore year. Um, you are never really going to use the stuff that, that you're primarily learning Um in, in life beyond that point, if you're not planning on specializing in something that takes that specific subject very seriously. Now, for myself, I always found my English class, classes very important and useful because I do a lot of literature. I do writing. I do uh, argumentative structures. I, you know, talk on, you know, the podcast and stuff. And um, I, I, for myself, for what I have my interest in, find it very helpful. But I frankly found math as a complete obstacle and a pointless burden that was um, ultimately <laughs> meant to hold people back. This is what I find very interesting, right? When you get into these higher levels of education, you, you are um, making it extremely hard when you're teaching these subjects as, at advanced levels as such for students that don't have this all-encompassing understanding of various subjects of education to continue their education because they're expected to meet uh, unreasonably high proficiency level at um, tasks and at um, subjects that aren't relevant to them. 
So, um, you know, with this, if you abolish the compulsory attendance laws and you allow students to perhaps, and, and again, this is, it's almost like the market in this way, but a student could choose to go a variety of different places with this, right? But if you, um, you know, get rid of those compulsory attendance laws and you allow my friend who went to high school and worked at the same place to, um, to work at this place full time, then he, you, you're going to see him making more money and higher in the ranks at this same point in time in his life. And um, ultimately, you know, I know many people that were very eager to get a job at 14. Lagoon is a very popular place for that around here. And if you're not familiar with that, it was like a small amusement park. Um, but you see, uh, you see in many people the desire, um, even myself, I would include in this group, having a job at 15 to get a job at a young age. Um, and it gives them a sense of independence and it gives them a sense of personal worth and contribution to society and the economy. And it teaches them skills. Now, my first job was at Chick-fil-A and I, you know, I mean, you know, the stigma around Chick-fil-A, I learned fantastic customer service skills from Chick-fil-A. And it's something that has benefited my work career in multiple jobs in mul multiple ways, um, for a ton of different reasons. And, um, it, it's, it's transformed into very useful work experience that I would not have learned through school. And arguably, um, you know, if you remove the stigma around, like if I were to be applying to jobs and I didn't have my high school diploma, then obviously that would hurt me. Um, but in terms of, because this social stigma is there, if you allow people to graduate high school two years earlier and you have the same experience, I, I will, I will just put it out there that my, that my customer service experience, particularly at Chick-fil-A was a bigger help to me in terms of helping me get a job, um, outside of that field, um, because of what you were taught in this job. And you can, you can move this kind of idea to all sorts of different, um, all sorts of different fields of work, all sorts of different types of services. And, and these kind of things will translate across the work field of, of work experience. And in a lot of cases, um, and, you, and you'll see this if you also apply for jobs, work experience is or sometimes is more just as valuable as, as a, a, a college education, as a bachelor's degree. Um, work experience is, is often sought for, and that is actually one of the hardest things for people with bachelor's degrees searching for jobs to overcome as they're looking for a job with their bachelor's degree is, is the work experience. Work experience is incredibly important. So by changing the stigma and removing these laws and allowing students to uh, focus on their work experience rather than uh, ridiculous, unfathomable, pointless education systems, then you're going to see an overall incline in um, the efficiency of our society. But in addition to this, you're also allowing students to spend more time figuring out what it is they want to do, exploring career fields and such, and, and not spending it on education. And this is, this is going to construct not only a more efficient society, but it is going to additionally construct a, a happier society. And so, you know, by, by removing this standard of compulsory education and this standard of involuntary servitude into a pointless system that won't teach you anything that you're going to use in your life, um, you are um, essentially at that point... Um, you're, you're making society better through these, these cases I've provided. And then you go into college, you know, and, and frankly, you know, if I had to, if I had to go back and redo what I have to in college, like if I had to, you know, basically say I transferred schools and none of my credits counted, I would, I would probably not do it because I just finished my general education um, this past semester. And, and I can't emphasize enough that, this general education um, things that you see in in college are the last two years of high school repeated. That that is what they are. It is the last two years of high school repeated, and it's it's incredibly frustrating. You know, I'm majoring in. I'm sure you many of you can guess. I'm majoring in political science, and I see no purpose. For me to take a class about earthquakes and volcanoes or nutrition or public health. 
I see no value in that towards um, doing what I want to do as an adult. Now, perhaps it has benefited me when I talk about subjects I am so less interested in, um, in a casual setting, but that does not mean that it should be a necessary compulsory education for someone who has no interest in that thing to do. Uh, nonetheless, I find it very efficient and practical for people to have interests in other subjects that they're not uh, spending in their career field to uh, advance on those interests in their own time through self-education, learning at a pace they would like to know through free and more efficient ways via the internet, such as YouTube or articles. So the presumption that you're going to have a less educated society is, I find, ridiculous. I find it that, that many people are um, inclined to naturally learn about things that they're interested in. And I don't think that we need force from the government or from government rules, regulations, laws, compulsory attendance, so on, in order to foster or even societally encourage people to um, give attention to their other interests that they might be interested in. So I think that it is just incredibly presumptuous and inaccurate for one to say that um, the only way that we can have a more educated society is through compulsory education. Now, with that being said, I'm, I want to, before I go into college even, I want to kind of, well, how do I want to do this? Do I want to go into private education first and talk about the benefits of that? Or do I want to go, yeah, I'll go into college because um, private education is something that can encompass colleges in, in these same ways. So I'll continue with the college thing. So it, it's the first two years of college, in my mind, are completely pointless. And I think that um, they are um, totally, um, it's just a deterrent from going into college. M most college students, I would assume, um, drop out in the years of their general education and because of their general education. Um, and now there's several student loans that are pointless because they were learning things or um, being required to learn things that are pointless. And I'll get into a, a counter-argument to that. Well, I, I guess we can just go right into it. But Tyson, the, what if you have private schooling? You know, in, in a private school, like you said, you you may be required to take tests that, that you're not interested in or that don't benefit you in order to join that school. Now, if we look at the amount of people that seeking and prioritizing education, right? Like I said, we have 50 million people in this country currently attending public schools. So what would happen to all of these people if the educations were privatized? Well, really, um, what you're going to see is you're going to see a decision probably made by the parents early in life but or by students, um, and they're going to attempt to tailor their um, the education system they insert their child in um, to something that they are good at or passionate about. So... Um, you know, you're going to see, it's it's like uh, Murray Rothbard uses a great example in For a New Liberty, the Libertarian Manifesto. I've collected so many great points from that book. Highly recommend anyone that's passionate in the liberty movement to read the book. Uh, For a New Liberty, the Libertarian Manifesto by Murray and Rothbard. He talks about books and magazines. Now, if there was a compulsory state book or magazine that someone um, or that people were uh, forced or obligated to read... People would be, people would lose their minds. But because we have a privatization in the literature industry as such, you see an abundance, a, a pure abundance and variety of literatures and entertainment across these fields. And it may seem like a weird concept breaking down academics um, from what we have known it. But ultimately, magazines and more so books are a perfect example of a voluntary education. And there's no reason that we wouldn't see this same concept as we see in all of the areas of the market that are free apply to an abundance of different interests. And just to go over that, you know, I, I can talk about economics. You could have a Keynesian economic school. You could have an Austrian economic school. You could have a socialist economic school. You could have a communist economic school. You could have a, a serfdom economic school, for crying out loud. You, you 
would have the ability to focus your education in the theories that benefit yourself and you feel you can capitalize on given your interests, passions, and strengths to translate that into a beneficial thing for society in turn. What is most beneficial for the individual um, based off of their uh, decisions of values would most likely in many, in most cases, the, the vast majority of cases would in turn be more beneficial for society. It's not beneficial for the individual to have no work experience or education. That does not leave the individual in a good place. It doesn't leave society in a good place, but it certainly does not leave the individual in a good place. So you're going to see this concept of, and, and another great example, you know, um, schools as, as they primarily are through the public education system are majorly secular. You know, they're not, they're not religiously affiliated. However, if, if a parent uh, finds it necessary or has a desire for uh, their student to go to a religious school, then they could go to a religious school. The, the competition and the abundance of efficiently allocated resources would provide the necessary diversification of education necessary in order to um, appeal to and propel society to a better standpoint. Now, we talk about the progressive era a little bit. This is primarily known as the 1880s through the 1920s or the 1990s through 1910s, so on. That roughly two-generation or so period of time. And this is when public education began to, um, to grow and um, began to become compulsory. Now, at the time, many of the political decisions were driven by um, cultural, religious differences in the United States. This is why we saw the abolition of alcohol in the 1900s. I believe it was 1922 um, with, with the 18th Amendment. Um, it was it was a very a very heavy importance to a, ma a major part of America. They you know which completely obliterates the concept of the separation between church and church and state. But withstanding, um, this is one of the the fascinating things about the market is when you allow for freedom of choice and competition of ideas, you're allowing people to be able to maintain um, appeal to and even question the philosophies in which they are taught. Now, um, when did education become exclusive and limited, and when were the foundations of what public education would look like determined? This, is, have, this happened over a, a broad period of time, but um, you see you know, different aspects of this happen uh, throughout many portions of the countries for a variety of reasons that ultimately come down to one thing. In the, uh, what it must have been, the 1918 about, um, there was a time of anti-German sentiment, and you see very heavily in Midwestern states, there was a rejection and even outlawing of not only schools, uh, public schools of teaching German, but even for private schools to have a Germany-oriented or a primarily German-language um, education philosophy. And, you know, these are, this is one example of the confinalities that come with a pr a public education that don't allow one to be able to um, even understand education or be educated their own culture. In fact, I, I am completely unaware of any public education system in the United States that is not exclusively English, although the United States has no official language, it, it, which, you know, the majority of us speak English. That's fair. I don't think in a private education system, anyone would have a hard time finding an ego school. But, you know, it would be nice for people that come from Mexico to be able to go to a school in Spanish.
or people from Germany to be able to go to a school that teaches German or whatever country you want to insert into the X. So this kind of thing is not only um, allowing education to be more accessible and more easily understandable, but beyond this, right, it, you're seeing uh, an underlying problem here with the restrictions put on education. And this is something that, you know, you saw in Oregon around the same time period. Oregon outlawed private schools. Now, the Supreme Court very quickly shut it down, but Oregon outlawed private schools. Now, why? Why? Maybe we can, you know, understand there being public education to a degree. Right, and I'll make the case against public education shortly, as as if I haven't already. But I'll, you know, it's it's compulsory attendance. I'll get into the money later. Um, perhaps we understand why we have public education, but what would be the reasoning for outlawing or even majorly regulating private education, such as not allowing it to exist or confining the language they were able to teach in? It would seem almost xenophobic, but these laws or the stigma is majorly already in place. Now, in order for us to understand this, we're going to have to understand the, the socio and, you know, partially religious, but majorly uh, the socio-racial uh, uh, stages of what America looked like. And at the time, and this was throughout northern states too, you should be educated, right? This is not exclusive to the South. The Ku Klux Klan was very strong in the United States of America. In fact, that was the major driving force for this happening in Oregon. In fact, the Ku Klux Klan was one of the major organizations that not only lobbied and supported public schooling, but compulsory public schooling. You see this through the alienation of immigrants being forced to, as the word is said, assimilate into Anglo-Saxon white America. But additionally, you see this happen to the Native Americans as well. The idea of assimilation was not unfamiliar. You saw this same concept being played uh, through the relations between the Anglo-Saxon or the whites or whatever region they may have been from um, and the Native Americans throughout Manifest Destiny and um, the colonization of America. So this is not this this is something that was born to ideas that we would look at today as sinister. Yet the advocation for the abolition of such compulsory assimilation laws would seem rather reprehensible to many average people. Now why would that be? Ultimately, there is no better explanation for public schooling than government-mandated uh, indoctrination at the most impressionable ages of someone's life. And the ability that the government has in order to create these compulsory laws only further implies that a child is a mere creature of the state. What an obscene concept that is. And it is one that, frankly, I do not understand. There Again, this one-size-fits-all idea is, is ridiculous. Because it doesn't. One size does not fit all. It just doesn't. It, it just doesn't work. And if you were to broaden education in that stance in order to uh, include courses um, that uh, were better for people, I might support that. But in addition to this, we're now seeing the, the monetary problem come into play here. Now, I was asked by this lady who is running for Congress. Her name, her name is Alina Erickson. And um, you guys know me. I'm a, I'm a, a true bleed gold libertarian. I'm an anarcho-capitalist. I am as, you know, I'm a pragmatically radical anarcho-capitalist, right? I, I'll support liberty where it comes. Uh, whether or not it's necessarily uh, has the same end goal as mine, because a step towards liberty is a step towards liberty. So I was asked the question, Tyson, how do you feel about schools teaching firearm safety? And I said, well, you know, this is where my philosophy majorly becomes disinterested. Not because we have anything wrong with firearms, 
but simply because if you were to have firearm safety in a school, you would need to hire another teacher, you would need to have another classroom or an even more expensive classroom or range. And that would be the allocation of government resources to a different, to not, it would be not only reallocating resources, but it would be growing the income of the government. Now I cannot support this. And this is why the monetary systems in place with academia in the public system are an immoral monstrosity. Not only is everything that happens in the public se sector the most inefficient, and the reason for that is because without competition, but rather the enforcement of compulsory education laws through a monopoly on violence, which the government has, the government has no fear of competition. They're in control. They have no competing ideas to compete with. They have no one that has the ability, resources, or authority to put down their inefficient systems or to replace them with better systems. It is simply something that is not beneficial for society. It's not beneficial for the taxpayer's money. It's not beneficial in terms of the inefficiencies we see through the actual teachings of the education that are implemented but it is increasing the amount of money that is stolen from people. Now, I, it, is, it is morally obscene that people that would choose not to have children for whatever reason that, that might be, maybe they don't want the responsibilities, maybe they don't believe society is in a place fit for um, children to be experiencing, maybe they, um, you know, maybe it's too expensive, maybe they can't afford them. Yet, if a couple would like to purchase property and to live in a house that they own, they are required to pay for property taxes and 85% or so, depending on the state of property taxes. The property tax in general, because of this, is generally equated with the education system. So why would people who have no children be forced to pay for the education of children. It doesn't make much sense. And, and you know, this is where the, the common um, argument comes of, well, it's for the better good of society. It's, you know, you, you are, you have, as, as a member of the society, you have a moral responsibility to promote education to, um, to, to people, such as, and particularly students who are arguably more vulnerable or impressionable or unable um, to provide those resources for themselves. And, and you know, from a moral standpoint, it's, it's a decent point, right? But I think that um, when you bring competition into it, right, I think that you would see a, a very large amount of people wanting to invest their money into the schools that they deem best, right? Whether it's their kids going there or whether it's donations, whether it's, you know, done religiously or whether they want to support their ideologies, right? You're going to see major supports in the ability to support education and a real competition in the institutions of the marketplace of ideas, which which is why we have free speech. It would be a fantastic thing for society in order to be able to open the doors and allow for this kind of thing to happen. It would, it would be massively beneficial. And frankly, right, then you, then you have another question. Would, and would education be something that is um, inaccessible to people of lower incomes? I would, I would staunchly say that it couldn't be. Well, Tyson, the, the people at um, lower income levels oftentimes aren't even paying property taxes. That is fantastic, right? They, they, frankly, people that are, are financially struggling shouldn't be paying taxes. They, they really shouldn't, right? They're the least likely to benefit from the programs that taxes are implemented on. And you may bring up public education as, as a point, and you might say, Tyson, you know, this, this public education 
thing, you know, you're, you're not going to see public education happening, um, you know, if, if the schools are privatized. As we increase in technology, as we increase in innovation, and particularly with the internet, we as a society, regardless of where the education system has been, have advanced past the point or desires or even inaccessibility. I would say that would, if you look back through America and you, and you see why impoverished people were not as likely to get an education, the primary cause of that would be inaccessibility. Yet as we innovate and advance as a society due to capitalism, we see a massive, massive plethora of accessible information become abundant. I find it very, very, I very seriously say this. I am quite certain that a person could obtain a bachelor's degree from YouTube. You think I'm kidding? Like I, and, and here's the thing, I, it's completely serious. Some people may think I'm kidding, some people may not, but it's completely legitimate claim to make. It, there is no reason why a person would not be able to do that. Simply through one medium, that is YouTube. In fact, YouTube is probably the most undercredited educational uh, institution in America. Generally speaking, now I know that there's censorship and whatnot, but generally speaking, the amount, I, my, I, my dad learned how to fold a fitted sheet on YouTube when he was like 35 years old. I mean, the, the, the amount, YouTube is like the mass publication of the diversity of information. It is fantastic. And it is, it is accessible. It is majorly accessible. I would argue that almost everyone in America has the ability to do that, to, to obtain it. And the people that don't are likely not participating in the education system regardless. It is in the best interest of society to promote and maintain an accessible, efficient, and not costly education system. It provides more innovation. It provides more thought. It provides more efficiency. And again, all of society will increase from what is beneficial to the individual tailored to their values. Now, what do I plan to do about this? I said, you have ideas. Okay, things are working. How are you? What are you going to do? You're, are you really going to go out there and advocate for the abolition of the public sector? Perhaps I would say that I may already do this. However, that is quite a lofty goal of someone as, as myself to realistically be able to achieve or, um, or even see play out or advocate for. So what do I do? Well, I am going to start, hopefully, obviously, this is the goal, but, you know, by the time I, and I, I may have talked about my private welfare, quote-unquote, business, I want to start. It's not a business, really. It's not a for-profit anything, but I want to make a private school, and the private school will go from kindergarten all the way through law school. And what we're going to do is essentially we're going to get people through law school and graduated with their law degree by the time they should be done with their bachelor's degree. That kind of thing is, is and, and the way that we're going to do that is, first of all, we're going to we're going to obliterate those years of high school. Right. The 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 information that you learn, like here in Utah, we call it math 1050 or math 1010, completely useless. It's useless to my bachelor's degree. It's useless to law school. By removing the first four years or the sorry, the, the the last two years of high school and the first two years of college and specializing education based off of the interests of the students would allow for the expedition of the education process and additionally allow for students to learn tailored to their desires, strengths, and beliefs. And with this system, you're going to see um, the ability to expand your knowledge even beyond a law degree. 
at a much younger age. Now, this kind of system built around efficiency. Built around efficiency, not around barriers, right? When you build something around barriers, it is inefficient. It doesn't help. It's counteractive. But when you build something around efficiency, that, that is when you begin making money. And I don't mean making money as in profit or capital, right? It's when you start cooking with gas. You know what I mean? That's when stuff starts rolling. That's when the strain starts chugging along the tracks and starts to pick up speeds. It's when you hit third gear. You know, everyone's car is different, but in many of my vehicles, I found that it's much easier to accelerate faster in third gear than it is for the first two or even the fourth and fifth. You hit third gear, right? You go into that, that phase, right? You, you alter the, the standard of the efficiency and even age at which high levels of education could be obtained. And there's absolutely no reason why this shouldn't be able to happen. Because frankly, all that you need to do, and this is essentially what we need to do to government in whole, and this is going to wrap up the episode, guys. But essentially, all you need to do is remove the counteractive government barriers and continue to build institutions and society around efficiency. Thanks for listening to this episode of Utah Liberty Talk, ladies and gentlemen. This is the education system. Uh, if, you, if anyone has any questions or input or whatever, you know, I always love to hear it. I said at the beginning of the show, we got Patreon, you know, go check out the shop, whatever. Y'all already know the deal. Next up, you got capitalism, more specifically capitalism versus communism. It will be a critique on communism. Thanks for listening again, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you enjoyed.